This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. And on today's show, I'm joined by Brenda Elsie, an associate professor of history at Hofstra on Long Island, Lindsay Gibbs, a reporter at Think Progress in Washington, D.C., and today, a special co-host, Erica Ayala, a New York-based sports writer who covers the WNBA and the NWHL, who listeners might recognize from a recent episode, episode 75, where she and Lindsay talked about the NWHL season and the news that Lisa Borders was stepping down as the WNBA president. We are so thrilled to have Erica with us today. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first things first, as always, thank you to our patrons whose support of this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down Possible. We are forever and always grateful. If you would like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burn it all down. You, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, but if you donate a little bit more, you can access exclusives like an extra Patreon-only segment or a monthly newsletter. On today's show, we're going to talk about sports and politics. That's politics with a capital P because this was election week, so it's on the forefront of our brains. And then Brenda will talk with Janet O'Shea, a professor of dance and studies in the Department of World Arts and Cultures Dance at UCLA and author of Risk Failure Play, What Dance Reveals About Martial Arts Training. They discuss what play can offer today's society and O'Shea's experiences as a martial arts practitioner. And since we have two women's basketball experts co-hosting today, we're going to preview the women's college basketball season that just got started. A quick side note and or a heads up, I guess, on our bonus Patreon segment this month, which we're going to release this week, we'll be talking about the ongoing World Cup qualifiers and the women's hockey season that is in full swing. So if you want more on women's sport, sign up for our Patreon. And then we're going to cap off today's show by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout outs to women who deserve shout outs and telling you what is good in our world. But first, perhaps you all remember... In episode 56, I went and looked it up. (laughs) We opened the show by talking about, let's say, an unfortunate rendering of soccer legend Brandi Chastain on a plaque uh, when she was inducted into the Bay Area Hall of Fame. It was so bad that they ended up replacing it. And not that I really want to mention him here, the reported rapist, but there was this famous bust of Cristiano Ronaldo at a Portuguese airport that, let's say, missed its mark. And it was also replaced. And so now we have a new statue, I hope you all saw it, of Egyptian and Liverpool forward Mo Salah, which was unveiled last weekend at the World Youth Forum. And I'm just going to let me describe it really quick, just in case. It's his entire body, but it gets bigger as it goes up. So <laughs> so he has like really small feet and a huge head and his arms are outstretched. He's looking up this up at the sky smiling, which is is nice. The problem is that it doesn't actually really look like him. Deadspin compared it to Richard Simmons at the 45 minute mark of one of his workout routines. I learned about the statue because my friend Melissa McEwen texted me a tweet that she had written that said, quote, this is not a statue of Mo Salah. Salah, this is clearly a statue of Pawnee City Councilman Jeremy Jam. You just got jammed. Jam is a character. He's the worst character on the delightful show Parks and Recreation. And it really, really looks like him. Like it really, really does. So why does this keep happening? I mean, sculpting likenesses, you know, it's difficult. But what is happening in the world of sport and art? I always wanted to think that the Cristiano Ronaldo one was on purpose. 
I know it's <laughs> ruining it though. I know, but I always these like, good people. I always really because you know there's another statue of Cristiano Ronaldo in Madeira that he commissioned. Oh, we talked about it. Yeah, everyone should the, go back and listen to our laugh our asses off because about it's it. the one where his genitalia looks disproportionate, like larger than his head. <laughs> it's huge, and he was his, really happy with that one. That yeah. nothing's changed in terms there of that. There are pictures one. of him posing really happily with yes. next to his giant dick. Like it's <laughs> disgusting. Yes. Well, his his absolutely crafted genitalia, but the, the one you're referring to is just the head, which was destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. It was bust. destroyed and they redid it. And this one, the artist apparently said that it was the problem came because there's only certain ways that you can pour and cast bronze in Egypt. And oh, so interesting. Couldn't evidently do it to the way that she yes. wanted. I have no idea about this bronze issue, but this is supposedly what is being blamed. <laughs> Convenient. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's some laughs for us to get this kicked off, and now on to the show. All right, Brenda, do you want to get us started? Sure. We don't probably need to tell our dear listeners about the thorny relationship between sports and politics. In fact, this show is almost always preoccupied with the meaning of sports and its political implications. But given that this past week was a big, big week in politics in the U.S. anyway with the elections, it seemed to especially overshadow or at least permeate sports more intensely than usual. And I think there's three different ways. I was thinking about the show and how we treat sports and politics. I just think we could reflect on on the week a little bit. And I thought there were three different ways to think about the relationship between sports and politics. One is sports as a lens. We look at the world through it. It's like a special microscope. Another sports is a platform. Sports used as a way to change society, uh, making political statements. And then the third way that we tend to talk about it is sports policies, like building stadiums, physical education programs, things like that. And over the past few years, there's been this generalized idea that politics is ruining sports, that it's it's responsible for the decline in viewership. People just want to escape during sports. Surprise, it's all been correlated with women, LGBTQ, and people of color, especially African-American communities, using sport as their platform. So somehow the Department of Defense using the NFL to promote itself and its trillion-dollar budget wasn't political. So you could tell there's definitely a particular angle here. And instead of shying away from all that, because we never do anyway, I just thought we could talk a little bit about the political stories that were shaping our sports viewing this week. Thank you, Professor Elsie. (laughs) I was like, you should be drawing this up on your chalkboard with like lines and stuff. No, that's really great. And I think, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I kept thinking about this week, especially here in Texas. It was a huge election. It was basically pretty good. But one of the things that was interesting to me, and this is kind of not going off of any of your three things, but that I wanted to mention today, is how wild it was to me that political coverage was so (laughs) sports-like. I was just like watching the returns and just the way that sports has actually permeated political coverage as well, that that there's this other way that it's working on top of like all of the sports stories around politics. But that was something that was also on the forefront of my brain this week. Um, Erica. Yeah, I think first of all, I I just think it's ridiculous that we still have a conversation that sports and anything or politics and anything are separate. If you think about how athletes are treated, I mean, we talked about the lens, the platform and sports policies. I think that athletes are continually impacted by policies that don't allow them, whether it's amateurism or just how funding is relegated, to really have to make sacrifices beyond the sacrifices they make for their bodies. So I'm thinking of Sharice David's, there was um, the, what was it, uh, Now This, I think, the video where she talks about being underemployed or unemployed. And I think that that's something that athletes in general, male, female, any sport across the world can relate to. And that 
impact them. So we want athletes to kind of silo themselves as these great, you know, people who can do amazing things with their bodies when it's convenient for us as society. And I think that compartmentalizes certainly the athletes, but also ourselves. And I'm really not here for it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so interesting because one of the things that we actually saw this week, and of course we did, was that, you know, multiple former athletes became politicians who were elected to office, including Sharice Davids, because they're part of the community and they have things to say. And of course, like sports is always looking for angles, sports media. So we got lots of articles about it. But on some level, it makes total sense that, that athletes are really tapped into their communities. Bryn? Well, yeah, there were a few really interesting when you talk about athletes tapping into their communities, they also have a public profile that allows them to tap into donations. So there are a couple interesting races. Yeah, there are a couple interesting races. They're obviously seen by political parties as being potential, you know, having potential communities either, you know, it's because like Colin Allred, the the Texas Congress person. Mm-hmm. That, was just, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he went to Baylor. And, you know, that alum community, too, really supported him. And then in Ohio, in the 16th Congressional District was Anthony Gonzalez, who is a Republican. And not some people are sort of like, oh, a Latino Republican. I don't know when people are going to get over that thing. <laughs> but he's also Cuban American, so absolutely not shocking. But he got donations from Peyton Manning, for example, and Brown Brown's owners, Jimmy Haslam. So, you know, that's part of it. That's part of it too, you know, that they're seen as as being able to really use their profile and get some serious donations. Hmm. I hadn't even thought about that. Lindsay. Yeah, one of the things, obviously, so the number of women in Congress is above or in the House is above 100 for the first time, which (laughs) sounds like a lot until you realize there are like, you know, more than 400 seats. Do you know what I mean? Like we're a quarter. (laughs) But uh, anyways, but, you know, people were talking about it as a big as a big deal. And I, I thought that Christine Brennan had a very interesting tweet. She's the USA Today columnist. And she said, like, this is the Title IX generation now that's running for these offices and that these women have been given kind of a different um, level of belief in themselves and a different level of opportunities. And look, on one hand, I saw a lot of people in her mentions being offended and saying, because people are all, you know, and saying things like, well, you know, my grandmother was independent and she didn't have Title IX and she was forward thinking. But I, you know, and and, you know, there are certainly caveats to be had, but I think that it is interesting to look. I mean, studies do show that women in the C-suite, women executives, most of them have have been athletes in college, <laughs> you know, that the, the participation in sports in the high school and collegiate level really does translate to successes in life. You know, it gives women this confidence and this drive and this work ethic. And not that women didn't have that before, but it helps fulfill that. And I think, you know, all the time we talk about the benefits that sports have for men, but they have the exact same benefits for women. And those skills translate on the court and off the court. So, you know, I was looking like both of the, there are two Native American women um, who are now in Congress, which it is just absurd that this is the first time, but... (laughs) Take that away. Like the other one, other than Sharice Davis, she's a marathon runner, you know? So it's just, it's it's quite an impressive, impressive group. And so many of them have ties to sports. And I do think that there's something there. What do you guys think? Brenda? I think there's something there too. But I think, you know, when you talk about Title IX too, it's like, it's like it did just get them also to go to college. So, So like Christine Brennan's take is well taken. And yet it's like when you read the article that she cited, it's like a one to two percent maybe difference in playing sports or not playing sports. And so part of it is also just, you know, Title IX, they're they're getting more resources and having less, you know, harassing like <laughs> sort of situations, period, because of quid pro quo than they ever had before. So they're staying in college and stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's super interesting and I tend to agree with you and Christine on a gut level, but I'm a little, I shy away a little bit from like the studies. 
you know, because they weren't really super convincing. Interesting. Erica? Yeah, I think that the studies, you know, I kind of agree that maybe there's there's more to look into there. But I also think that it's not just a matter of confidence. I'm, you know, as I was listening to the conversation and and looking up some of the information, I was like, okay, well, I was a, I was an athlete. I grew up, you know, relatively in a time where Title IX was really impacting girls and women in sport. I played in college, and I'm trying to think what did sports offer me that maybe I didn't have elsewhere that my female peers didn't have. And I really think it's an exposure and not necessarily, I wouldn't say a total comfort, but an exposure to boys and men that I was on the playing fields with them. I was teammates with them. I played against them because there weren't always options for me to play sports with just girls. And I think that is a part of it too, that women literally cannot be ignored. We're not just um, at home or in, you know, women's clubs playing against each other in very light forms of sport. We're competing against boys and for, and some men, uh, like a Shannon Zabadas, who plays for a, the Canadian women's hockey team and played in men's leagues before playing professionally now in the NWHL. So so I, I think that all of the, the things about confidence for those who play more recreationally, I think that's definitely something. But it's also kind of a change in culture and a culture shift of having women be around sports, which I don't know was really the case before. That's so interesting. And it makes me think about the way that women's sports are so threatening all the time, right? And so much of that has to do with the fact that women are quote unquote, you know, like the ideas that they're invading these, these male spaces, um, whatever we think about that. Uh, Lindsay? Yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out. There are two women actually are going to be joining now the Michigan State Board of Trustees. And these oh. are women who ran a campaign in Michigan on listening to <laughs> Nasser survivors and on really changing the culture at Michigan State University. So it's really exciting that and that's just kind of another way that women are influencing the the sphere of the world, the political world and the the politics sports overlap. So it's exciting right now the Michigan State Board of Trustees is now tipped it used to be 4-4 Republican Democrat, it's now 6-2, Democrat to Republican. And of course, we know that doesn't change everything, you know, automatically, and that there are tons of Democrats who have been enabling horrible, horrible abuse at Michigan State as well. So I don't want to sound like partisanship will cure is a cure all. But I was extremely encouraged after all the horrific things we've seen happen and enabled by the Michigan State Board of Trustees. I was incredibly excited to see two women running and winning these seats. That's a great story that I had totally missed. So thank you, Bren. Yeah, there's been some really interesting fan actions, too. So this week during the Hometown Heroes segment in the Trailblazers game, there was usually that's a segment where they recognize that the game a member of the military. And I know we've talked about the relationship between the Trailblazers and Leopold and Stevens. Yeah, Lindsay burned that. Yeah, Lindsay, Lindsay burned that. And this particular U.S. Marine Corps Sergeant Josue Hernandez at the moment unzipped his hoodie or sweatshirt or whatever that said, end this sponsorship, no Leopold. So it was live and it was powerful because he is a member of the military and it, it was sort of fascinating. Leopold has supplied sniper rifle scopes to the Israeli Defense Forces. So I, for people that don't remember Lindsay's burn, that was kind of fascinating. And it's something that really, you know, isn't just exclusive to the U.S. either. We've, we've seen a lot of fan actions. And we should just mention that Iranian women, there was about 100 that were allowed into a game this past week for the first time in many years. That's awesome. Uh, Erica. Yeah, I wanted to stick with basketball a little bit. And just a reminder that the WNBA, when we talk about players and using their platform, and also kind of politics and sports, the WNBA impressed me, I guess it was about 
three seasons ago now, when instead of having their post-game interviews, both teams, it was the New York Liberty and the Indiana Fever, and it was Tamika Catching's last game at Madison Square Garden. It was the year that she was retiring. They opted to, both teams, to not talk about anything related to the game and only to talk about the shows of support and awareness for police brutality in the United States that had been going on. So teams like the Minnesota Lynx, the New York Liberty have been wearing shirts to demonstrate the the issue and, and the challenge of police brutality and, and also the, the police officers that have been killed by gun violence. And when the WNBA started cracking down and, and giving fines to the teams and to individuals. The The players did a media lockout. They only talked about the issue of gun violence. And then also Tina Charles, who I think she won, it was either player of the week or player of the month after the fines had been announced. She actually turned her shirt inside out, her warm-up shirt inside out. So it was an all-black shirt uh, as a sign of defiance. And she knew that, you know, hey, this is my opportunity. I'm here getting an award, but I still have something to say on this issue and I, and I won't be silenced. And I thought that was a, a really great show of strength and kind of also goes back to the conversation about women being in spaces and being able to elevate and amplify messages that oftentimes can get lost, I think, in kind of just the media scuffle of, oh, these are NBA players or these are NHL players doing certain things. And these are women who took their voices and, and used it on the court and also throughout. And to this day in the WNBA, you will see players and teams being very active in the community when it comes to gun violence. Yeah. And they also, I was just, because we are, I was prepping for this segment and the WNBA PA was partnered with Rock the Vote. This they like cover all across the spectrum on capital P politics. It's very inspiring, especially because we often talk on the show about. I mean, they're risking a lot because they don't have much, right? And so the risk is is huge for them, and they just refuse to be silent about the things that are important to them and 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 to the league. And I think that's constantly amazing. On the basketball note, I did want to mention when we're talking about platform. First, we have Shut Up and Dribble is finally airing on Showtime. I don't have Showtime. I might have to get it because I've heard it's spectacular. But I just think that's so cool that LeBron James took that terrible thing that Laura Ingram said about him and and named his fucking documentary after it (laughs) to like shove it in her face. But then that kind of activism that I'm sure is brought up repeatedly and shut up and dribble. Uh, we saw it again this weekend. The LA Clippers host. I actually didn't look it up. Which team were they hosting? Does anyone know? But both teams wore shirts that said enough and the had Bucks. the names of it the 12 the people. Sorry. The Bucks. Thank you. Had the names of the 12 people who were killed in the Thousand Oaks shooting this week. And, you know, the we get all <laughs> these basketball players in particular using like Erica was just talking about what they're wearing and like when they're what they're wearing when they're physically taking up a basketball space with a platform to you know put out these political messages that are very very powerful okay well you know this is something that we constantly talk about on the show and we will be talking about it again but for now we're going to move on Up next, Brenda's interview with Professor Janet O'Shea about what play can offer today's society and O'Shea's experiences as a martial arts practitioner. I'm so excited today that we have with us Janet O'Shea, martial artist, professor in the Department of World Arts and Cultures and Dance at UCLA, and author of a brand new spectacular book that we're going to be talking about today from Oxford University Press. It was just released November 1st, and it's called Risk Failure Play, What Dance Reveals About Martial Arts Training. Janet, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So just for the readers who haven't gotten their hands on the book yet, could you give us a little description of it? Sure, I'd be glad to. The book comes out of my experience training in martial arts. So I should say up front, when I talk about martial arts, I'm primarily talking about sport fighting, martial arts that involve a live element of sparring or grappling. Um, I think sometimes 
because I'm a woman and a person of a certain age. When I talk about martial arts, there's a tendency to assume that I'm speaking of the more esoteric, refined internal practices. Um, and so when I speak about things like lay and recognizing vulnerability, it might seem like, oh yeah, that's fine if it's something kind of soft and gentle. But I'm talking about finding those elements in a fairly confrontational, physically intense practice. And so the book, to some extent, is an anthropological, sociological journey. And then it's also part memoir. And one of the things that I have to compliment you on is it's really not self-indulgent. How did you do that? Where you both sort of, how did you reach that good balance? You know, once when I, I was living in London, I went to see this film. It was a documentary. And sadly, I can't remember the name of it and I can't remember the director, but it was this woman who had made this documentary that was kind of primarily about herself. And one of the people who was commenting on it and it said, you know, a lot of people make documentaries about other people, but it's really about themselves. You've made a documentary about yourself, but it's really about other people. And I kept coming back to that idea as I was writing this. Because I felt like particularly when it was about, about something that meant so much to me and about a practice that was so immediate, I couldn't really speak for anyone's experience but my own. And yet I realized very early on in the process, like there's not that much that's terribly interesting about me within martial arts. Um, I'm not a competition level fighter. Um, at the same time, I'm not somebody who was timid and fearful and went through this major transformation and turned into this, you know, black belt wielding tough person just by virtue of doing martial arts. So it wasn't like one or the other kind of narratives that we usually get with martial arts writing. Um, and instead, it was just this sort of in-between experience of, hey, I'm just a normal person doing this because I love it. And I think that position automatically opens out so that it's really, you know, it might start with me, but it can't really remain with me for that long and really get into the kinds of questions that I wanted to ask. I love that. It's about you, but it's really about other people. A question I had was about play. You're a very strong advocate for a particular complex sense of the term play, of the practice of play. Can you explain to the listeners why it's so important now, like a little bit about how you understand the kind of play you think is important and then why now it's important? Sure. Um, there's a tendency to think about play as trivial, as insubstantial, um, as avoiding consequence, and as being really peripheral to our lives, particularly as we move into adulthood. Um, I'm making a case, one, for just the necessity of play in our daily lives. And in that sense, what I'm doing is not so different from people who have been writing about creativity and the, you know, psychologists and social psychologists who have written about the benefits of play. But I've tried to push it a little bit further in two ways. One is to say that it's not just, oh, we should play, you know, let's make some time to go, you know, play some non-competitive non rounds of tennis on the weekend or, hey, spend some time with your kids, you know. Um, kicking a soccer ball around. And instead, I've tried to, tried to delve into what kinds of play we participate in, how we play, um, and what that says about where we are as a society, um, recognizing that it's not enough to simply play. We have to be reflective about what values we're reinforcing, what kinds of social realities we're living out when we play. And then the other point is kind of a larger, but more specific, in a sense, political point, which is that American society right now has a disagreement problem, um, among other things. Um, politically speaking, we have this real tendency to see opposition as inherently invalid. And when you think about that in terms of political theory, that's a really frightening concept because it's very anti-democratic. Um, if we look toward agonistic sport, we can find models for disagreeing with respect and more importantly, respecting opposition as actually inherently valid. So a lot of our competitive sports really reinforce this idea that there's something shameful about losing, but also that the opponent has to be almost eradicated. Um, when you look at some of like that really high profile sports, and even what happens sometimes with kids sports teams, there's kind of this idea about like, let's run roughshod over the other team, instead of recognizing that like, there needs to be a really profound level of respect that this other person or this other team has put in all this training, they put in all this work, they're ready to meet you in this encounter 
adventure in which you get to discover your strengths and weaknesses and you get to vie for an outcome that you want. And if we map that onto the political terrain, I think it would be really healthy to think seriously about that idea that when opponents come together, why are they not coming together with a profound respect for all the work that it's taken to get to that moment? And why is there not that moment of, hey, you know what, even if I fail, my presence occasions your victory, and I deserve And likewise, if I win, your presence occasioned my victory, and you deserve my respect. Yeah, no, I think it's a beautiful um, point. And I think there's something there too about resisting dehumanization that way. And that that dehumanization of an opponent, if you want to extract that to political culture, quotidian political culture is really important to not do. <laughs> the, same as, yes. You know, yes. The, the same as treatment of, you know, why do certain sports seem to have a particularly misogynist culture? I think that is very related to a lot of a lot of what you found wrong in other types of in particular instances but your most mostly your book is focused on what might get right in this so it's it's a bit more constructive in that sense and so i wanted to ask you a little bit about the sparring in your book and the opponent as a woman in particular you know to just describe to listeners who haven't read the book yet a little bit about how your personal experience sort of related to your intellectual point about that? Sure. I mean, it was really interesting for me kind of coming into martial arts um, as a woman, but also as somebody who was well into adult life. And I started training. I mean, I had dabbled in martial arts for a while and it was something I had, I had really enjoyed, but for various you know practical reasons, like being in grad school and moving to different countries and that kind of thing, it it didn't really pan out as kind of a um, sustained interest until about five years ago. And I began training in martial arts at UCLA, taking like a once a week class. And that class just blew my mind. It was a Jeet Kune Do class. It was a martial art developed by Bruce Lee. And I fell in love with it. And so I joined the Jeet Kune Do club where we started sparring a few days a week. And so I was sparring, you know, not just people with people who are differently from me because they were men, but because they were about 20 years younger than me. And they were also a lot of them were students. You brave ass woman. Can I just also tell you as a middle-aged woman reading it, I was <laughs> just in awe of some of that. But please, not to interrupt. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, I mean so much because people often talk about the woman aspect of it. And I'm like, you know, gender was kind of one of my lower concerns when like, you got like a 20 year old coming at you, you know, <laughs> just like, wow, these people are so young. <laughs> They're so fresh. They look <laughs> They're so, so rested. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Right. Yes. Right. My daughter was like two or three when I started training as well. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, wow, these people seem really well rested to me. <laughs> I mean, so many things like that. So, you know, it was really fascinating to me how I think that's why in the book I focus on intersubjectivity so much um, because like there was something fascinating to me in that moment where, you know, I'd be there like on a like a weekend, like a Saturday afternoon, you know, sparring with these science major guys. And there'd be those moments, right, of like, oh, my God, this person is so young and fresh and energetic. And, and then that would just go away. And it would be like the person becomes reduced to their habits and their strategies and their tactics and their decisions. And that to me was so fascinating how like time after time I would watch that happen. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't just happening for me. Like, I'm pretty sure it went the other way around too, that to these people I was training with, I was no longer like this older woman, professor, parent, you know, but I, I was this set of decisions and actions. And to me, that, that was just super interesting how sparring kind of reduces people to this level that is so relatable, but also such a place of radical difference that it can't even be reduced anymore to gender, age, or training background, or size, or fitness level. Um, it becomes so specific. And that to me was fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating to read about too. So, And I realized that you don't actually separate out gender as a point of analysis in the book. It, it runs throughout there's a particular chapter called What's There to Lose that has a, a very 
you know, fascinating and difficult chapter to get through in the sense that it it brings up so many things and examples for one's own life. And I just want to give you a little quote and see if you could talk about it a little bit. But I found it just fascinating. It says, you write, (laughs) I should say, such cultural constructions of the body and of behavior set the stage for men's violence against women. And here you have a very long preamble. So I should just say to people, I'm, I'm taking this out of context, but I love this particular quote. But men who attack women don't simply rely on cultural codes of behavior to avoid confronting women's physical force directly. Instead, men who attack women manage their crimes socially and physically to shield their own physical limitations. They render their targets vulnerable by manipulating circumstances, choosing as victims those who are very who are sorry, who are very young, very old, disabled, exhausted, sick, drunk, unconscious, or in a situation of emotional, institutional, or financial dependence. Men who attack women reduce the risk of exposing themselves to a woman's power by how they initiate violence. I thought that was just a a fascinating way to think about it. I don't know. Do you have anything you want to say about that particular part of the book? Sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to. I mean, I think you're right in saying that, like, I don't separate gender out as a term of analysis. Um, Instead, gender kind of runs through and kind of asserts itself at particular points in the process. And I think one of the things as a woman doing martial arts that I continually come up against is this question of, like, do you do this for self-defense? And my initial position was kind of defensive in relation to that. Like, why can't I just do this for fun? You know, men do martial arts for fun. Um, you know, why can't, but then, you know, as I sort of delved more into these questions, I was like, okay, well, what people are responding to is a very complex set of social circumstances in which, um, men's violence against women is a tool of social control. Um, and it's one that is both invisibilized and sensationalized. So it's a very complex set of circumstances. And then alongside training in martial arts, I began training as an empowerment self-defense instructor, um, and empowerment self-defense is, you know, quite different from martial arts, uh, because it's not a sport and it's not oriented towards like an aesthetic. Instead, it looks at violence as a tool of social control and looks at self-defense as a social justice intervention. It also, unlike a lot of martial arts, um, really looks at the context in which violence occurs and looks at, at the conditions that a person is likely to be in if they are facing violence. Um, and one of the things I realized through that training and specifically through my training with impact self-defense um, was something I had kind of known all along but hadn't been able to put my finger on, which is that we get really strange messages in society about, about women and men's violence. Specifically, there's a lot of essentialist ideas um, that men attack women because women are inherently vulnerable and men are inherently invulnerable, um, that men attack women because women are presumably weaker and women are presumably weaker because women are statistically smaller. And these are a bunch of really weird conflations, you know, uh, because it's not like only large men are running around attacking small women. It's not are inherently weak. I mean, there's so many weird conflations that happen there. But then the thing that really drives me crazy in that discourse is that when you look at the actual ways, it's like you, if you if you look at how men's violence against women has been researched, which it has, and it's been very well documented, that it's incredibly rare for a man to attack a woman by going face to face, toe to toe, and standing off against her. And people often talk about that, and they say, "Oh, well, that's because you know, if if a man's looking for a fight." He's going to start a fight with a man, um, you know, and that's typically true. But what it doesn't really acknowledge is that that's because these men are on some level really afraid of women's power. They're not exposing themselves. And, and I'm talking about that on a very basic level of biomechanics that, you know, as you read from the quote, that it's often women who are compromised in some way. And that's always used to victim blame. But it's never used where somebody steps back from it and goes like, yeah, why? Why are those men who are targeting women always ta- targeting women who are in some way compromised. Like it's not that woman's fault for being tired or drunk or then if you look at also the mechanics of like men who attack women sneak up behind them or come from their side. So they're not facing the woman, the weapons that the woman has on her body. He's not facing her palms, her knees, her elbows. Um, And that to me is like, that really needs to be acknowledged in this conversation, both so that we don't continue to disempower women. And so we acknowledge how incredibly cowardly men's violence against women is. 
I just love that point. I just, it's, I, I love that whole section of the book. I mean, and it, it was just so powerful because it's, it's really complicated because you cannot deny that women are disproportionately victimized by men. And yet there's a way in which we talk about that, that, that assumes their victimhood has to do with some inherent physical weakness. And, and it's such a, it's just, just a very important point, I think, to kind of meditate on and then to put it into practice in the way that we write about women and write about women in sport in particular is really important, right? It takes, it, it, it caused me to like think like, hmm, (laughs) like how have I written about violence against women in sport? Let me rethink again and just realize, you know, I just don't think that point can be made enough. So anyway, it was just fascinating for me. Well, Janet O'Shea, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, basketball time. Lindsay, please start us off. Yes, it is finally NCAA women's basketball time. I'm so excited. Of course, we left off last year and with Notre Dame winning and beating UConn. Her two final second shots, game clinchers, Arike Agumbawale, our heroes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it's very fitting that this season starts with Notre Dame as the number one team in the rankings. It's very weird not to see UConn at number at that top spot, but it's pretty exciting. And look, I think Notre Dame deserves it. You know, Angumbawale is back. She's got Marima Mabre, Marina Mabry, <laughs> Jessica Shepard, Brianna Turner is back. We've got Jackie Young. This team is loaded. And I'm really excited to see if they can, you know, defend their crown. Additionally, UConn is just right there at number two. Of course, Gabby Williams, Kia Nurse, and Azrae Stevens, or as we like to call it, Shireen's best friends, uh, are all in the WNBA <laughs> She's now. She's going to love you for that so much. <laughs> I know. I feel like i got to make up some ground with Shireen. I've been pretty hard on her lately, so I'm trying to... <laughs> That'll do it. So we get to see this year, though, Katie Lou Samuelson really take over. Nafisha Collier, Crystal Dangerfield. I mean, UConn is never low on talent, and this year is certainly no different. And they've now been two straight years without winning the national title, which is a drought for them. (laughs) So uh, it's going to be real. It is. I mean, I'm laughing because that's so absurd to say, but it's completely true. Rounding out the top 10, and this is the preseason ranking since we are not yet one week into the season, but we've got Oregon at number three, Baylor at number four, Louisville at number five, Mississippi State at number six, Stanford at number seven, Oregon State at eight, Maryland at nine and South Carolina at 10. And even though I was just going to do the top 10, I feel like I do have to mention, because this is women's basketball, that Tennessee is at number 11. So I think that gives you a pretty good sense of where all of the big names lie. Personally, I felt like the season really kicked off on Saturday night, which is last night for us while we're recording this, with Oregon barely surviving a game against Syracuse. And it was... Of course, Sabrina Ionescu, who leading the way, you know, she's going to be player of the year. I don't know. Her, Asia Durr, there's going to be so many great candidates for player of the year. I do have to mention that one of the most exciting things for me this basketball season is that we have Destiny Slocum back in action. So she's at Oregon State. This is the point guard who really, really stole the show her freshman season at Maryland. This was two years ago. Then she decided to to transfer to Oregon State. So she had to sit out a year. But she is back. I'm very depressed that she's on the West Coast because that is not good for my bedtime. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just so excited to have her back. She is one of those players that to me, it just makes the sport even more fun than it already is. And so I can't wait. So what about you guys? Erica? Yeah, Lindsay, you hit on so much. I'll start with a 
Oregon State, OSU, and Destiny Slocum edging out her former team, the Terrapins, in the standings. So we'll see they're eight and nine. I did want to go back, though, to the AP poll, and there were some things that surprised me personally. I thought that Mississippi State was a little lower than I expected, considering that for two years in a row, they made it to the final. And so, I mean, you, you know, every team, you've got players that either transfer out or graduate, but I think Mississippi State is is a team that we should still be keeping our eye out on. Uh, you mentioned that Tennessee is at 11. They're actually tied with Texas. So Texas is trying to make a comeback in a big way. Excited to see what they will do there. Also, South Carolina. So won a championship and then have kind of, for a lot of people, at least at the national level, seem to have flown under the radar. Don Staley, of course, the head coach there, is also the head coach of the USA basketball team. As far as player of the year, I think Arike Agumbawale, you gotta gotta have you know her on that radar. You mentioned Sabrina Ionescu is able to get the ducks that win over Q's just the last night, but I really think people should be watching out for Katie Lou at UConn. I don't think that Kate, or excuse me, I don't think that UConn will have as much bite as they have in the, in the last several years. I think they have some transitioning to do, but someone who I do not doubt for one second is Katie Lou Samuelson. You want to talk about Michael Jordan flu game. I mean, she's had one of those herself throwing up on the sideline and then just dropping buckets. So I think she's got a nice little edge. And I think of all UConn players, there's kind of like a UConn mold that we're used to in the modern era, the last several years, I'd say the last five or so years. I think she's got more more bite than, than any player coming out of UConn. And I think that she can kind of do that consistently. Some might think it's a bold prediction, but I don't know. Watch out for Katie Lou. So are do you guys, do you see UConn? doing it again, taking it in the end? Or like, do you think that Notre Dame can really put up a fight this year and possibly repeat? Like, what are you thinking when you look long term down the season? I think that I don't see UConn winning the title, you know, and hey, they, they maybe they'll prove me wrong, but I don't see UConn as the number two team right now in the country. I think that there, again, there's some other teams that have gained a lot of ground and have done a lot of really good things for their program in the last two years in particular, where I think that the conversation with UConn really comes from their conference. There's a lot of conversation at the national level, whether the A AAC, the conference that they're in now, really prepares them for the national stage as compared to a South Carolina who's in the A. ACC as compared to, you know, a Notre Dame or Oregon in the Pac-12. So I don't know. I'm not giving them the edge. I think Notre Dame will be in the mix, but I wouldn't be surprised if we have a new champ. That's exciting. And I look forward to all of the hot takes about all the good that UConn has done for women's basketball that we know are coming. Lindsay, uh, what are you thinking? Yeah, I just want to give a shout out to, I mentioned Destiny is one of my favorite players to watch, but I'm also at Mississippi State. Let's see T.R. McCowan just take over yes. at center. Eyebrows, <laughs> I think yes. we all remember eyebrows uh, <laughs> from last year. And, you know, this year now, this is really her world, her team. And I'm just so excited to see them. Of course, you know, they've lost heartbreakers in the finals these past two years. They keep getting to that doorstep. Could this be the year that they finally put it all together and win the title? What do you think about Mississippi State's team? Erica? Yeah, again, I think that they were ranked a little bit lower than I would have had them. I think that, you know, folks need to put a little respect on their name in what they've been able to do. (laughs) So, you know, uh, they were an underdog two years ago, made it all the way to the final. They get there again. And if not for that buzzer beater that we talked about earlier, might have gotten away with one there or, you know, one straight out. But I agree. I think Mississippi State really has some things to add, particularly with McCowan. And you know, having a versatile big is women's basketball right now. That's a great point. Lindsay? Yeah, I just want to say that I'm excited that the Big Ten looks like it's going to be better than it has been in recent years this season. And I'm excited for that because I live 
uh, 30 minutes away from the University of Maryland. <laughs> so I can easily uh, get to those games. So it's been a little sad the past few years when there haven't been as many marquee games coming to town. So I'm really excited to see, especially, I mean, you've got Minnesota. You can't forget. Oh, Coach yeah. Waylon, That's right. The Waylon um, era. Back in the house. It's going to be interesting to see what she does. So I think there are just so many fun storylines. I do think that there is more parody than ever, you know, at the top of the game. And uh, I mean, look, we have like, we haven't even really talked about South Carolina here, you know, Tom Staley, like, there's so many fun things. And I think it's gonna be a really great season. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week and set them aflame. I'm going to go I'm going to go first since I get to set the order. 10 episodes ago on episode 70, we discussed the policing of girls and women's clothing in sports and Amira specifically said, "Quote, the fear of a sports bra is something that lingers very high in my mind." And talked about her high school cross-country team saying, quote, we all took our shirts off and we were running in a sports bra because it was hot as hell and there was all of this uproar over it. Well, as always, Amira was right. And the fear of the sports bra and cross-country runners lingers. This week, Gina Capone, a student and a former Rowan University cross-country runner, wrote an article on Odyssey, which is a self-publishing platform, about how the university recently banned the team from running only in sports bras. Let me just quote Capone here. So this is kind of a long quote. Quote, women running around the track in sports bras at their own practice were claimed to be distracting to the football players on the field during the same time. As if the women no longer being able to run in sports bras wasn't enough, now they're no longer allowed to run on the track, period. The girls are now mandated to run on the local high school track on workout days. In 2015, Rowan University officially finished their $4.6 million athletic practice facility. This is a D3 school, by the way, guys. The practice facility includes two fields for football, soccer, field hockey, and lacrosse athletes. There is a dedicated practice practice area for each team. The men and women cross-country teams have their track. They no longer have that privilege. Okay. So according to the New York Times, a university official said the track ban was the athletic department merely enforcing a longstanding policy that only one team can use the facility at a time. And the president of the university claims that the school has a longstanding verbal protocol that all athletes must wear shirts even during practices. Sure, sure. As if history and uh, and lots of girls and women's experiences over decades don't explain this better than any school administrator could. For all the schools blustering in response to the uproar, the president did also say that a new written policy would explicitly allow female athletes to wear sports bra tops without shirts during practice. Hmm. That PR thing tends to work, it seems. But as the New York Times piece points out with its kicker, quote, Hannah Vendetta, a second-year transfer student and cross-country runner at Rowan, said she appreciated the statement, which was posted online less than 24 hours after Capone's article was published. But there's still an issue at hand, Vendetta said, and it's the fact that we aren't able to practice on the track. Burn all of that. Burn. 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 All right. Brenda, what's on your burn pile? Jim Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. He lives there. <laughs> so one of the people to be reelected this week was Ohio Representative Jim Jordan. And I guess I don't want to burn him literally, but I want to burn the fact. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm on the fence. You can Go tell ahead. I'm on the fence there. But I actually don't. I'm, I'm a really nonviolent person usually. But I would like to burn his ability to bury his involvement in the sex abuse cases at Ohio State. So Jordan was, for people that don't remember, assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State from 1986 to 1994. And seven former wrestlers back in the summer accused Jordan specifically of being among the university members who ignored the sexual abuse of team doctor Richard Strauss. Strauss died in 2005. And during this campaign, for whatever reason, Jim Jordan just, it's like he's Teflon. It just bounces off of him, despite the fact that these wrestlers, many of them have come forward and discussed his knowledge and his communicating with them about Dr. Strauss or Richard Strauss. I don't even like calling him a doctor and his abuse of these young men. So I would like to burn the fact that he gets around that 
And that somehow I just feel that this should be something that he's forced to reckon with after Michigan State, after we've seen these horrific cases, to elect someone to public office without him fully having answered these charges seems ridiculous to me. So I want to burn his bearing of this. Burn. 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 Erica, what are you torching this week? All right. Well, I'm going to stick to politics here and head down to Mississippi. Uh, there was a... Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, How all good burn piles start. <laughs> well, no lie detected. Anyway, so there was an image that I saw on, um, on Twitter of a man wearing a white shirt and the, it, it read Mississippi Justice. Okay, sure. I don't know what that means, but until you see the images also on the shirt of the good old Confederate flag and a noose. And oh my so, God. Yes. So this was a man that was uh, voting on November 6th. I saw, I, I haven't been able to, to follow this up. Someone had reported that maybe he was even working at the polling station. But anyway, wearing a white shirt, Mississippi justice with a Confederate flag and a noose. Oh. Clayton Hickley has since been fired from his job for wearing the shirt. His employer released a statement, but oh wait, there's more. So Hinkley was also fired from his previous job as a police officer. So good old law enforcement. He was fired for being found in his vehicle with a 17-year-old a teenager in a parking lot with open containers of alcohol. I just, I don't even know where to begin with the outrage here. This is 2018 and this is what people wear to the polls. And I just want to take this time to just the conversations that we have around voting and the danger that voting has been historically to people of color, to women, that is still a thing, not only here in the United States, but across the world. And so I am burning this with every fiber of my being. Burn. 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 Lindsay, what are you burning this week? You guys are going to be surprised. <laughs> USA Gymnastics. <laughs> I know. Oh. I know. I know. Calm down. Calm down. Deep breaths, everyone. I like to keep you all on your toes. So this week, it's been a big week in the world of USA Gymnastics. On Monday, last Monday, the US Olympic Committee announced that it was going to take steps to decertify USA Gymnastics, which is something that we, along with a lot of NASA survivors, along with anyone with a brain, has been calling for for quite some time. So that's good news. Of course, the big question is, why now? Well, we might have gotten a clue thanks to a New York Times report later in the week. It seems that last week, a bunch of documents just appeared <laughs> at US, the USA Gymnastics headquarters in Indianapolis. These are documents that people are saying might have come from the Caroli Ranch and might possibly pertain to Larry Nasser. These are documents that people have been publicly searching for for two years now, maybe three years now. Uh, these are documents that have been discussed in uh, under oath in Congress. These are documents that, because they are missing, partially led to the arrest of Steve Penny, uh, former USA Gymnastics president. We talked about that a few episodes ago. These are documents that have been central to this investigation. Well, here's what happened. They just literally just showed up <laughs> at USA Gymnastics. USA Gymnastics was just like, oh, I think we have them. So here's what I love. Okay, so this is from the New York Times article. It says, according to the Gymnastic Federation statement, someone at the organization read news reports late last month that the prosecutors in Texas were still looking for documents with Nasser's name on them and realized that USA Gymnastics might have that paperwork. <laughs> You guys, this is unbelievable. And it's, you know, a lot of us who've been covering this USA Gymnastics stuff, you waver back and forth between how much of this is pure evil and how much of this is pure incompetence. <laughs> and the truth is, it's a whole lot of both. And this is, throw one probably on the 
either on the incompetence or the evil side. I think there's probably both here, but it's just absurd. And apparently this is one of the things that led the U.S. Olympic Committee to be like, yeah, we have to step in and we have to step in now. Of course, it would have been nice if the sexual abuse of hundreds of uh, girls had been the impetus, but you know, missing documents showing up works too. Burn. 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 After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First, our honorable mentions. Kayla Morris, a San Francisco 49ers cheerleader who knelt during the national anthem on Thursday, November 1st, when the 49ers hosted the Raiders. She's believed to be the first NFL cheerleader to kneel during the anthem. Mary Katani, who won the New York City Marathon last weekend by more than three minutes ahead of her closest competitor in a time of two hours, 22 minutes, 48 seconds. It was her fourth victory at New York and the second fastest race any woman has run on that course. Hannah Gavios, who finished the New York City Marathon in 11 hours on hand crutches two years after fracturing her spine after falling 150 feet as she attempted to escape from an attacker. She spent hours waiting for rescue, during which her attacker found her and groped her. Gavios used her participation in the marathon to raise money for Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation to fund spinal cord injury research, and she completed the race alongside Amanda Sullivan, who had finished the 2017 New York City Marathon on crutches and is Gavios's hero. Bilkis Abdul-Qadir, a former guest on the show whose film Life Without Basketball, which chronicles the story of how this Muslim African-American basketball player was not allowed to play beyond college because she chose to wear a headscarf and so was banned by FIBA, premiered at Doc NYC this weekend. Our Shireen Ahmed wrote about the film for The Shadow League, and we'll link to that piece in the show notes at our website. Jamie Sloan, a 34-year-old active-duty Air Force airman who set a personal record at an Ironman 70.3 last month after giving birth seven months before. We want to shout her out because, while that's awesome, she did this by, like, fucking pumping breast milk (laughs) while she was running in the Ironman, which is just, wow. Congratulations to the U.S. Women's Hockey Team for winning the Four Nations Cup, which was played this week between the women's hockey teams from Finland, Sweden, Canada, and the United States. The women of open stadiums, who in their continued fight to remove the ban on women attending football matches in Iran, went to FIFA headquarters this week, handed over more than 200,000 signed petitions, and met with FIFA Secretary General. And a drum roll, please. (laughs) All right. Sure. Sharice Davids and Deb Holland, the first two Native Americans ever elected to Congress, are our badass women of the week. Davids was elected to Kansas's third congressional district. She's a 38-year-old Democrat, lawyer, and former MMA fighter. She unseat incumbent GOP Representative Kevin Yoder, who served four terms in Congress. She is a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation and is the first openly LGBT person to represent the state of Kansas. And then New Mexico's Deb Holland. She is a marathon runner. Uh, she also won on Tuesday in New Mexico's first district. She's a member of the Laguna Pueblo Nation. She's also a lawyer. Uh, while she was chair of the Democratic Party of New Mexico for two years, the N- New Mexico Democrats regained control of the New Mexico House of Representatives. And now they both are going to serve in Congress. Congratulations. We are so thrilled that you all will be helping shape laws and policies in the United States. Okay. What is good, y'all? Brenda, what's good with you? Messy getting woke. (laughs) I really, I have been waiting for so long for him to, I mean, he's always supported, to his credit, he's always supported the grandmothers of the disappeared during the Dirty War. And actually, when he does those ads, like their traffic on their website goes up by something like 2 million views. So they always thank him and credit him with helping to find the missing gra- their missing grandchildren. But finally, he actually tweeted out a message of support. Well, no, he didn't tweet because he's, he's done with that. He Instagrammed a message of support for the Argentine women's national team. And so because I love his soccer so much... I'm just really happy to see him finally doing something to be a good ally. So that's what's been good in my week. Lindsay, what's good with you? Something. I actually wrote it down this week. Everyone who always yells at me for not being able to remember anything that's good. I wrote it down this week and it is Ariana Grande on social media. First of all, 
Thank You Next is the jam. It is a very great song. I am really enjoying it. And honestly, Ariana, we might need to talk to you about, you know, some burn it all down, loaning it to burn it all down a little bit. But I also loved this tweet earlier in the week. I've been thinking about it a lot. So someone tweeted, Ariana Grande is like one song away from making girls never talk to guys ever again. And Ariana Grande quote tweeted this and wrote, thank God. <laughs> and so if her. that's not a if that's not a burn it all down mood, I don't know what is. <laughs> oh man. Erica, what is good with you? Yeah, well, I am here in Toronto, so that's pretty good. I uh this is my first trip to Canada. Sadly, I missed oh. Shireen, so that that's not so good. But I am here covering the Hockey Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. so congrats to Jaina Hefford, the CWHL commissioner, as well as Willie O'Ree, the first black player in the National Hockey League, finally, 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 finally enters the Hockey Hall of Fame. I'm slightly salty that he entered with Gary Bettman, but maybe that's just me. I don't think it is just me. So that's what's good here. I I was able to speak to both of them. Willie O'Ree told me this amazing story about the first time he met Jackie Robinson when he was like 12 years old. And then when he met him again and Jackie was like, hey, didn't I meet you in New York? And I just love that story. When my worlds collide, my heart melted. It was amazing. That sounds so cool. Are you going to write about it somewhere? Yes. So I did write a piece uh, over at Victory Press, and I'm working on on getting the O'Ree story out as well. Awesome. Great. I can't wait to read it. Okay. So my what's good is that I've been watching a lot of really amazing women on TV shows, (laughs) and uh, that's been very nice right now. I did – we did watch Sharp Objects, which – Amy Adams is spectacular in I will say it's super heavy and you can't like binge watch it and you might not want to watch it at all like it is a rough story but the acting is just beautiful Uh, and then last night Aaron and I finished watching forever which is this Amazon prime show with Maya Rudolph Fred Armisen Uh, but really it's Maya Rudolph's show and she is so good and I don't understand why Maya Rudolph is not literally in everything all the time because she's also this phenomenal judge on The Good Place, which is one of the best shows on television. So that's what's been good in my world. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you to Erica Ayala for joining us this week. You can find her on Twitter at elindsay with an A08. Go follow her right now. And thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor and share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. And one more thank you to our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. A reminder, this month's Patreon-only segment about the World Cup qualifiers and the women's hockey season will post this week. And for as little as $2 per month, you can get access to our monthly Patreon-only segments. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash burnitalldown. All right, that's it from us. Until next week. And I'm sorry.